going to share two songs with you this morning. One is called Krishna's Flute, and the second one is Mukunda. And they're both by Swami Kriyananda. I heard your flute high on a cloud, your call I can't resist. Oh, let me come and play with you. We'll scatter music with the dew and sound the morning mist. I've heard you piping on a hill, all else I've set aside. Oh, let us dance the mountain peaks, we'll skip with breezes on the creeks, and soar the valleys called me to the fields now I've no place to live don't send me back rejected friend whatever I call mine must end all that I am I give I hear your call in every tree, in every flower and stream, and sweetest melody of all, a song that heaven's joy recalls. Here in my heart you sing.
was wonderful. So good morning. Our panel this morning is on a life of discipleship. And as Jyotish said on Monday, discipleship is really the defining quality of Swamiji's life. So we've really been hearing about it all week. But this morning, our panel will focus on that especially. So I'll introduce us. You've probably guessed we're all Naya Swamis. This is Nidruva, Maria, Nitai, and Anandi. A very wise person once said, there are many people who want to serve God, usually in an advisory capacity. <laughs> And Swami used to say in wonderment, why does everyone want to be a guru? I want to be a disciple. Mind you, he didn't say, I want to be just a disciple. He said, I want to be a disciple. I want to have the opportunity to draw on the grace of the masters. And when we read Autobiography of a Yogi, I think one of the beautiful and thrilling parts of the book is how each of these avatars is so profoundly devoted to their own guru, the flow of God within them. And Swami, at a, we were having an initiation years ago, and Swami couldn't attend, and Jyotish was giving it. And Jyotish sent a message to us through him, and he said, I want you to remember the guru is you. He's not out there. Yogananda is omnipresent. The guru is omnipresent. He's living inside of us. And what our discipleship is about is trying to find his ray of grace to empower everything that we're doing. So Swami's enthusiasm for his discipleship has transformed all of our lives. And I wanted to talk about three particular ways he's helped us understand how to live as disciples. The first of these has to do with something that seems a little virtuous. He said, you need to act as channels for master. It's not enough to practice his techniques, be completely devoted to him, um, and love him in all these different ways, but we have to feel that he is using us to flow through. No matter where we live or what we're doing, you could be working in a library, in an office, you could be in the middle of the country, all on your own, still to feel wherever you are, the guru is with you and using you. And it sounds presumptuous to ask an avatar to flow through you, and yet it is that which transforms us. Swami gave an, a most wonderful example of this that he said was sort of silly, but I find it actually quite profound. In 1976, when he was finishing his autobiography, The New Path, he went to Hawaii where he was given an apartment to work on the book, and he took a couple of devotees with him to help him with the project and feed him and all that. And at a certain point, they left, and he was on his own. 
And one of their jobs had been to make a thermos of coffee every morning and leave it with him. Ooh, excuse me. To have during the day. And so with them gone, he went in to make his own coffee and he did it apparently a different way than they did it. He filled the thermos with water first to measure out exactly how much coffee to make and then poured it into a saucepan. And lo and behold, what was in the saucepan was a lot of coffee gruck. Apparently, their way of making coffee didn't involve really cleaning the inside of the thermos. <clears throat> it's, not <coughs> it's not easy to clean a thermos. So Swami's approach was, I just keep filling it with water, pouring out the water, filling it with water, pouring it out the water, until eventually what came out was pure water. Now this is an interesting example for us as channels for Master. Because when we ask the avatar to flow through us, what comes through us? Hmm, it's not all avatar. <laughs> Some of it has to do with ego. Some of it has to do with resistance or fear or whatever else we seem to be dealing with. And we may feel like, well, he didn't really, I really can't do this. I'm not good at this. But what that example teaches us is, of course you aren't. But just keep asking. And if you keep offering yourself, just, you'll just be like that thermos. You keep getting more clear water of the Guru's presence flowing through you. And as that does, it washes away all those resistances. And pretty soon, it's more and more guru, less and less of us, which is exactly what we need in order to become free. The second part, which goes very well with the first part of getting rid of, uh, of living as disciples, is to get rid of the little self to let it go. I think the, when I think about what, if I think of all the messages I've gotten from Swami, all the advice over the years, what was the defining one? And this happened, um, Bharat and I were each in the monastery for many years, and we each felt at the same time that we were meant to be together, and Swami said it would be good for us, and so on. And yet, as the wedding day approached, I got cold feet, and wasn't sure if I could do this, and wasn't sure if Bart was the right person, and is this going to work, and all that. And so I wrote a letter to Swami. I don't know. Am I doing the right thing? Is this going to hold me back spiritually, and all these kind of, uh, uh, as, uh, as Diva said yesterday, let the whining begin. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so it was. You know, uh, and I got back a um, handwritten letter from Seva, which said, Swami said to tell you he's praying for you. He said, your problem is you're thinking about Anandi. Stop thinking about Anandi. Start thinking how you can help Bharat. Just reverse your thinking. Go from me, me, me to how can I be a channel? Now that advice, I feel like Swami has given me that advice about a dozen times in the years since then, which seems pitiful and amazing in a way. <laughs> How could I have had so many opportunities for personal counseling with Swami? Um, but the truth is this. Over the years, obviously more in the beginning than later, I hope, um, I would come to times of emotional, oh, I'm not very good at this, or I'm not worthy, or blah, blah, blah. 
I have to write Swami about I really need to write Swami. I really need to explain this to him and have him work this out for me. And so I would begin to craft a letter in my mind, or I might even start to write that letter. And uh, I wouldn't get very far into my planning process when the answer came. Stop thinking about Anandi. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I can't write him a letter. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't fulfilled what he told me to do the other time. If I would stop doing that, I wouldn't need to write him this letter. And so it was humiliating, and, but it, it stopped a lot of correspondence going from, <laughs> from me to him. Just figure it out. Think big. Expand yourself. Get out of the little you and let God's light flow through you. As he said to me at another time, which I always used as the finale for this, stop thinking about Anandi. Live in the thought of God. Live in the thought of God. That's how we will be disciples. The last thing I was thinking about, about how he was sharing with us how we can live these teachings is to keep our minds focusing up. Um, He uh, gave a talk here, oh, maybe it was about 10 years ago. And during that talk, he said, I was thinking recently, wondering, and he said it kind of like this, I was wondering If anything, I had had the thought recently of wondering whether anything I had ever done had pleased Master. And he said it in a tone like that so that we would get the sense that when the thought came, it was one of those, oh, I don't think anything I've ever done has pleased my guru. And so we were all in this mode of, oh, tender sympathy, oh, I know what that feels like, kind of compassion. And then he said, and then I realized that that thought came from Satan. (laughs) Because Satan always tries to discourage you. God never discourages you. But Satan's greatest trap for the devotee is discouragement. And so whenever we find our mind going through that subtle introspection of looking carefully at our faults and deciding that really they're probably the worst faults you could have for a devotee, we have to know where the thought comes from. It does not come from our guru. It is not part of discipleship. It comes from a force that's saying, don't change. Be who you are forever. Stay in littleness. Don't expand. Don't try to be in tune. So these are some of the channels of the ways that Swami has come to us. He once was asked by a woman, what, how can I find my spiritual path? And he said, look for a place, in the, look for an organization. You're, if, you're, if you're looking for your guru, your, your guru's organization should be filled with devotees who are full of devotion, love, and harmony. It should be a place where people are eager to serve and not merely thinking about their own inner peace. And it should be a place where the overriding goal is truth, not institutional convenience. 
That sounds a lot like what he created here, doesn't it? And it's what he's modeled for us. I had a very interesting experience um, recently. Uh, Lalita was putting on a wedding at the um, Crystal Hermitage for two young people that I knew through the expanding light. And so they had invited, they're very devoted to this path and um, very, they wanted to have the whole Ananda wedding, all of the prayers, all of the masters. And um, they had a whole family of people, 35 people who knew nothing about Ananda or what we were doing here and so on. And so there was a lot to figure out in terms of the rehearsal and the ceremony. And luckily Lalita was there, we were doing it together. We were very interested. We just got a letter from the mother of the bride, and of course she loved Ananda. She loved everyone she met. They loved the ceremony and so on. But she said something that has made me been thinking quite a bit, and it's been a very expansive, uh, beautiful thought. She said, the way you and Lalita worked together, she said it was almost as if you were reading each other's minds. And I really reflected on that because, of course, we weren't reading each other's minds. But what we were each doing, instead of thinking, what's she thinking, we were thinking, what's he thinking? What does Swami want? What does Master want? How can we bring their teachings into this particular setting with this group of people so that they understand it, so that it it speaks to them? And as we each reached up, It was a natural harmony. And what that was expressing for me was so touching because as I've been working on getting the expand the the details of Spiritual Renewal Week pulled together, I've been connecting with probably 40 people, many of whom are connecting with another dozen or 20 people, you know, the Korea ministry, the cooking, the community volunteers all these different people. And there's been this energy that's exactly what I was experiencing that this woman highlighted for me. And I've been feeling it not just in the village, which is an obvious place to feel it, but like across the world, in all of our colonies, in our meditation groups, someone over here needs prayers because they're very ill or these people need money or these people need personnel and it's like we're all sort of tuning in like this and then there's an osmotic flow okay we have personnel here personnel can go there we have money here money can go there and we're just if we can continue to live this way to live in this flow of discipleship I really cannot imagine what can happen In the Ananda movie, um, which many of us had seen, I think one of the very, very striking parts for me was when Swami says at the end, you know, she said, well, can a few people do anything really? You know, it's little, a couple hundred people here, you know, a few hundred people there, there. It's not very many people, a thousand people worldwide. Is that enough to change the world? And Swami said, it is. He said... In the rest of the world, there's no focus. Everybody's energy is canceling each other out. And so if you take a group of people who are all having the same focus, and if that focus, I don't think it's enough that it just have the same focus, but if that focus is anchored 
in this power that's coming through the masters, there's no end to what can happen. And it might change the world, but it will most certainly change us. So thank you very, very much for joining in this great adventure. God bless us all. This morning with a story that Swamiji often tells about Master. And it was the time Master went into a cane shop to buy a cane. He often said that Master would buy canes as a way of keeping himself grounded to the physical plane, um, to reminding him there was a physical, reminding himself there was a physical reality here. So he bought canes, he went into this cane shop, and because he wanted to spend the organization's money wisely, he automatically started bargain for the best price he could get. And when finally he got the man down to the price that he thought was the best price, he kind of looked around at the shop. He said, this man has a really, he thought to himself, this man has a really poor shop. I want to help him. So when he went to pay for the cane, he not only gave him back every, all that he had gained by bargaining, <laughs> but more. <laughs> and then, as Swami tells the story, when, when Master got back to his home, he remembered that shop. It, was kind of, it stayed with him. He said, what a poor floor that man had. I'm going to get him a new floor. Now, Swami said, this is an example of the kind of kindness we need to develop. And he said, kindness is a divine quality. And I'm going to be talking this morning about divine qualities. And I don't usually use that term, but it's a term Swami has used. And I like it because it reminds us that these qualities are an expression of our divine nature. But he said, Master Yogananda expressed all the divine quality, qualities to perfection. And that our job as disciples, as devotees, to also learn to express all the divine qualities to perfection. And he also gave us the how-to. How do we do that? We do that through affirmation is helpful, prayers are helpful. I don't want to in any way suggest they aren't. But we do that primarily through deep meditation and deep attunement with the guru. Because as we open to the guru's consciousness, it flows into us. And not overnight, takes quite a while, little by little, his ego-free consciousness begins to replace our more egoic consciousness, and we begin to automatically manifest those qualities in our life. So I want to talk this morning about not just, well, kindness is a big one. I, I started with kindness in preparing for this talk because Swami has emphasized kindness so much. And I said, that, and that's where I found out just by re getting on the web, getting on, doing a search, oh, kindness is a divine quality. And he said, it was one that Master frequently expressed, he said. But there are some others that I saw, those and others I saw Swamiji express regularly. And the ones I'm going to focus on today are kindness, compassion, forgiveness, generosity, selfless love, um, consideration for others, courage, and humility. I'm going to go back to 19 to, to tell the stories. I'm going to go back in time. <laughs> I'm going back to 1998 because in 1998 there was a pause in the eight-year litigation that I had been involved in. The state court action was over. The federal court case involving SRF was over. But SRF appealed to copyright rulings. And one never knows how long it's going to take for an appeal to be decided. It could be a year. It could be two years. It could be even more. So at that point, Swamiji invited me to come to Ananda Assisi, where he, that was then his primary residence. 
uh, for a time of rest and relaxation. It was open-ended. We didn't know um, how long I'd be there, but I was, of course, very eager to go. So I closed down my townhouse in uh, Mountain View. I sold most of my belongings. <laughs> I put the rest in storage, and so I went to Assisi. At the time, um, 1998, Swamiji was giving satsangs every Saturday at, in Assisi at 6 p.m., uh, dinner being at 7.30. It's later in Europe. And uh, these were very, very widely attended. Uh, they were attended by people from uh, as far away as Rome and other cities, very well attended and very much looked forward to. Sometimes he would give the Sunday service the next day. But there was a man who was regularly at uh, his satsangs who was an artist. Now, this man was an excellent artist. He was a fine artist. And he worked in a number of different mediums. But it just so happened that painting wasn't his strongest medium. And then one day, he gave Swamiji a gift of one of his paintings. And uh, for the entire time I was in Assisi, Swami never hung it on the wall. I don't know if because of lack of space, but it was, it was kind of off to the side like this. You walk into his house, it's on a little raised platform against the wall, you would see it. Um, about two months after this artist gave Swamiji this gift, um, he sent him a bill for the painting. <laughs> now, I was, at, I was at Swamiji's house when this subject, when apparently the bill had just come, and I was part of a small gathering, and Swami was kind of reflecting out loud about this unusual situation. And none of us offered any advice. We felt that Swami, <laughs> Swami would know how to handle this. And so, but he, you know, as he often does, I'm sure many people here have been with him, he just will kind of ruminate on things, reflect, and kind of, well, this is interesting. About two weeks later, I was again at his home with many of the same people who were present at the first gathering, and someone referred to this artist's unusual request. And Swami announced, oh, I've been to the bank, and I've withdrawn the money he requested. And I turned to him and I said, you mean you're going to pay him for it? <laughs> he said, I've already paid him. <laughs> and to myself, I, couldn't, I didn't, couldn't, couldn't say another word, but I, to myself I said, why? You know, to me, a gift is a gift. And the man's request was not only inappropriate, but presumptuous. All Swami said was, I want to help him. And reflecting on it later, just standing back, I thought, well, it's what Swami tuned into here was this man had a legitimate need for money at that time, and he considered Swamiji his friend. And I didn't know him well, but I'd seen him around, and he was a very dignified person, a person with a certain amount of pride, perhaps. And it later occurred to me that perhaps the only way he could ask for the funds he needed was the fruit he took to send the bill. And I was, very, I was very touched, not only by Swamiji's generosity, a divine quality, but also his humility and his kindness and compassion. And without question, without you know, going through any kind of interrogation of the artist, gave him the money. Um, it was a lot of money. <laughs> the, um, the second instance I want to share with you took place in Assisi. And it involved the time when three people suddenly showed up at the center. 
It was a woman in her mid-30s and two young men, I would say, in their mid to late 20s. And they were always a little bit apart from the, the flow of the activities at the center. I think they camped on the edge somewhere, not on the property. They didn't take their meals at the retreat. I, I imagine they had food with them. And um, they were a little bit odd. Uh, now, the woman was nursing a four to five month old baby. I estimate that as age. And the men would take turns uh, carrying the child on their backs whenever there was a satsang or a service to go to or various times. And their interaction was odd, the three of them. Maybe even a bit, I don't like this word, but it, it kind of fits here, a little dysfunctional. You know, it, it doesn't, there was something off and you felt it. Um, but nonetheless, they were at the satsangs, they were at the service, Sunday service, and I first became aware of their presence actually during a Sunday service because I heard, during the chanting, I heard this exceptionally strong and very good soprano voice that you could hear above all others, and it was this woman. You know, it wasn't, it was just on the cusp of being too loud. You know, it was okay. But you noticed that she had a really good voice. But there came a point, and this, this is what, I've heard all, I heard this, I wasn't directly involved, that one of the members of the staff in the CC, not, not a leader, asked them to leave the community. I don't know what precipitated it, but there was a kind of power element in the relationship between the men and the, two, and the, men and the woman, woman, and it could have perhaps related to something that happened. She was clearly the leader. They were clearly her subordinates. Um, but he asked them to leave. And where I kind of entered the, sort of this, this whole picture, I heard that Swamiji had, when he heard this, had invited the staff member to his house for a discussion. And the fruits, I don't know what he said to him, but I know what he instructed him to do. He said, you go find those people, you apologize to them for what you did, and you bring them back. Now, how the staffer managed to do that, I don't know. But he had his orders. <laughs> and they did come back. And I reflected on it. I said, now, most people, when they're asked to leave, somewhat arbitrarily, and I, he was a little bit... Um, judgmental, let's put it that way. When they're asked to leave somewhat arbitrarily, you know, they get huffy. I'm not coming back. You know, they're angry, they're, they're, their pride is offended. And why did they come back? Well, Swami said, you bring them back. Well, how could he bring them back? Swami Kriyananda wants you to come back, obviously. He had to say that. If, if this man had come to you and said, come back, would you have come back? No. No, you wouldn't have. So he, you know, Swami said, you bring them back. The only way he could guarantee bringing them back was by telling Swami Kriyananda would like for you to come back. So they came back. And their pattern didn't change very much. They were still who they were. Uh, uh, they were still a little bit apart, not interacting with anyone very much. And the kind time came when, of their own free will, uh, they moved on. But I was deeply, deeply moved by that whole episode because you look at these people and you could tell these people had not received much kindness or love in their lives. And in that simple gesture of making sure that they came back and making sure they knew it was Swami Kriyananda asking them to come back, he gave them the gift of love, of compassion, of kindness, and non-judgmental acceptance. And it's very easy to imagine 
in the lives of these three souls that that experience could have been life-changing. Divine qualities, all these being expressed by Swami, unconditional love, compassion, kindness, uh, non-judgment. So now I want to go back a little bit in time to when I was leaving for Assisi. Uh, that was 1998, and I was on the East Coast en route um, visiting relatives, and I got a phone call from Swamiji at my mother's house, and he said, uh, mind you, I'm in Buffalo, New York. I've just got one more stop, New York, and I'm going. <laughs> he said, um, by the way, you know, the house you're going to be living in isn't quite ready. It's under construction, <laughs> but not quite finished. And I estimate it'll be finished maybe about a week or so after you arrive. In the meantime, you're welcome. I mean, I'd like to invite you to stay in the guest room of my home. I said, oh, okay, sounds pretty nice. So I went there and I went to Swami's home. Now, the guest room was, Swami had recently built a two-level house, a two-story home. The guest room was the entire bottom level. It wasn't a guest room, it was his music room, it was his recording studio. It was a space he used for overflow gatherings, gatherings that were too large for his living room. And it had a big storage closet in it. It was a beautiful space. Don't, don't get me wrong. It was lovely. And it had a lovely uh, couch that converted to a bed, a couple of armchairs, its private bath, and a separate entrance. Um, so I settled into this. It was very nice. But at the same time, I wanted to find out what was going on with my housing. So I investigated my housing. <laughs> And I, what I learned was that the, the, the housing was being built uh, by the man who owned a lot of the structures that were being used by Ananda Cecia staff housing. And he was building this like as an adjunct to a much larger building. And it, there were two units with a little connecting space in between, suitable for two deputies. And eventually I moved in and a friend of mine from Ananda took the other space, had a little kitchen in between. Uh, but what, what happened is that this man had other construction projects going on at the same time. And occasionally he would need the workers from my house to work in other houses. Well, the week and a half stretched into eight weeks. <laughs> I was a guest in Swamiji's house for eight weeks. Uh, now, life very quickly settled into an interesting, nice routine. Um, Swami would come down once a day usually, usually in the evenings for about five or ten minutes just to say hello. Often he'd stay longer, half an hour, sometimes an hour, mostly in the evenings. Occasionally he would come down in the mornings, um, usually maybe to get, uh, get things out of this big storage closet that was there. But shortly after I arrived, he came down uh, one day in the evening to show me a letter he was writing. And he just drafted this letter, and it was writing this letter to a person who had testified against him and Ananda in one of the lawsuits discussed in John Parsons' book, The Fight for Religious Freedom. Testified against him and Ananda in such a way as to be extremely harmful to him and extremely harmful to Ananda. And we had all the, uh, I knew this person when she lived here in the early 80s. She was close to Swamiji. She was close to many of the people sitting in this room. We had, we had so much we could have been introduced to discredit that testimony, but we couldn't. We had, there was a gag order. Read the book, you'll find out why. Uh, we couldn't. So that testimony went unchallenged. It was very, it resulted, frankly, in the, it threatened Ananda's very existence, I mean, the repercussions of that testimony. And it was very harmful to Swamiji. 
Nonetheless, he was writing this letter. Very that surprised me. Um, and what was very surprising was the tone of the letter. It was very friendly and caring. Now, if there had been anything to forgive, he had clearly forgiven her because there was no trace of any kind of negative sentiment, not even a wisp in that letter. It was kind and caring and tactful. And what he was doing, what he was saying to her in about as tactful a way as he could, be, be careful. Let me say back up one more. He had seen great spiritual potential in this person in the past. And obviously he thought there was still a possibility of her being able to fulfill that potential. So notwithstanding all that she had done to harm him and destroy Ananda, he said, be careful of your attitudes and actions and the consequences of them on yourself. And what he was trying to do in a very diplomatic way was to warn her against the power of negativity. Because I think we all know, and once you start putting your toe in that stream of negativity, there's a power that comes in that's not your own. It can just sweep you along and destroy your spiritual life completely. And she was, she was, she was wading in that stream at that point. And he was cautioning her, be careful. You know, think about your attitudes and actions and their impact on you and your spiritual life. What was very touching about this whole process was the care that Swami gave to that letter. He said, I want to make sure she reads it, so it has to be only one page. So he kept shortening it, making sure he put it just the right way, and finally he was satisfied with it. It was less than one page, and he airmailed it because email was just getting underway. And I don't, he never knew whether she read it or not, but that didn't matter. Swami had, he felt, almost as though, as though he felt compelled out of his, I think, the selfless love he felt for this person, the kindness and the compassion to do all he could to prevent what he saw as um, the wrong course she was running, the, the, the potential results of the wrong course she had set for herself. So I want to share one more example. It also took place when I was living in Swami's guest room, and it involved me. And this involved a time when Swami came down. Um, well, let me just back up before I get there. The entire time I stayed there, I always felt, felt welcome. Never once did I feel that I was intruding. And always, always I saw that Swami was willing to set aside his personal needs if ever he saw an opportunity to help me spiritually. Well, this morning when he came down, he came down to get something out of that closet that I mentioned. I was sitting in an armchair reading. And from one moment to the next, a window in my consciousness opened onto uh, the deepest level of receptivity I had ever felt. From one moment to the next, I felt deeply uplifted and receptive. Swami, who was standing doing something, pulled up a chair, sat down, proceeded to talk to me for almost two hours. And what he was doing, we talked about all kinds of spiritual things. I could have talked all day. It was that kind of energy. But he was infusing me. He saw the moment. He was infusing me with his vibrations. Never mind what he was going to do. It was well past breakfast time. Swami was fixing his own breakfast in these days, driving his own car. You know, he was very independent. It was well past breakfast time, but that didn't matter. He had seen this opportunity, and he had immediately, without as much of a pause, acted. For me, it was a deep blessing, needless to say. But then, you know, as all good things must end, the time came when I had to leave Swamiji's house. And I remember very vividly, you know, I had to go out. I went out my door, went around to the front, went into the front door, and I gave him the gift, 
I, we talked about the gift. He knew what it was. I had a gift for him. I wanted to make sure he'd like it. So I told him about the gift. I gave him a gift. And I said to him, I really want you to know how very much I have appreciated this opportunity to stay here. He looked at me with that look of his. He says, it's been good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it had been good for me. And Swami had been deprived of his, for eight weeks, of his recording room, his music room, um, the overflow space for large gatherings, and to a certain extent, even his privacy. Because you can't have a guest in your house for eight weeks without it in some way infringing on your privacy, even though I was a really good guest. But, you know, it, it happens. Um, but that, you know, what mattered to him was none of those things. What mattered was that it had been very good for me spiritually to be there. And I want to close by saying Swami, Swami said, Master manifested all qualities to perfection. So did Swamiji. He manifested all of them to perfection. And he said that we will not find God until we learn to manifest these divine qualities to perfection. So just as he has followed in the master's footsteps, master in the cane shop, so perfectly, let us follow in his footsteps through deep meditation, deep attunement with the guru. Let us manifest these qualities to perfection until we, like Swamiji, can go beyond all qualities into that state of oneness with God. Many blessings. Mm. So when I was thinking about this topic, actually the first time I saw it, I wasn't sure what was meant by it. And I wrote to Anandi and I said, a life of discipleship, does that mean Swami's life or my life? <laughs> and she says, well, maybe it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> so I said, okay. But um, I was thinking uh, also of all of the people that come or might listen to this, these talks. Um, it's important to know what a great soul Swami was. But he's not going to be here anymore in the body. And so for people who come who um, maybe knew him very a little bit of time or probably there are people in this audience that never knew him at all. Um, the question comes up, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean? Because this, the guru-disciple guru relationship is cr crucial to the spiritual path. Master puts it on the very first page of the AY. Um, the, how that manifests, however, is extremely broad, extremely varied. And that's kind of the thread I'd like to pick it up by this morning, that we all have a guru-disciple relationship ahead of us. How it manifests is going to be unique. A friend of mine, a new friend of mine, uh, shared an insight a couple days ago. She said, if you can see the spiritual path stretched out before you, you're looking at somebody else's path. <laughs> and I wanted to modify that a little bit. And if you can see what the guru discipleship, look at, this guru discipleship uh, relationship looks like, you're looking at somebody else's guru disciple relationship. <clears throat> because every single person has a unique one. It's extremely challenging. We're in the West where the whole idea of a guru disciple relationship is a new concept. When Ma Master wrote those words in Autobiography of a Yogi in the 40s, I don't know how, I, I bet less than 1% of the population in the United States could relate to it. Guru disciple relationship? Are you kidding me? And <clears throat> so we've had 60, 70 years now 
of working with that and seeing what is it? What does that mean? <laughs> We've seen an enormous number of mistakes made in that interpretation. Um, We've seen different models. Okay, so first we had the AY. We have the model of Sri Teshwar and Yogananda. And, you know, it's, it's very powerful, powerfully stated. Uh, my, my Years in My Master's Hermitage is one of the most powerful chapters in that book. And you read it and you think, oh, well, that's what the guru-disciple relationship is like. And none of us <laughs> were around master, right? None of us, none of us were, we were, we were given a different version. We were given... Swami Kriyananda. Um, Swami Kriyananda expressed the divine in his particular way. He uh, refused to say that he was enlightened, that he was in, had had uh, uh, samadhi. He always said, uh, the master had told him that death would be the last test for him. Um, so we didn't have that sense of, oh, oh gosh, I'm working with an avatar. I and mean, that would be very different if you, if you felt like you were working with an avatar directly um, I don't think I could have handled it <laughs> personally. I think I would have lasted about five minutes and gone. Um, so my particular version was to be here at Ananda and to spend all, many, many decades with, with Swami. Um, I wasn't looking for a guru-disciple relationship, to be honest, when I came here. I'm not sure how much experience I have had in past lives with it. Um, it was, uh, I enjoy, because the guru to me is is beyond words. It was definitely beyond personalities, beyond, beyond conception. Um, so, in, you know, in coming, in coming to Ananda, um, I wasn't, you know, that wasn't on my mind. What was on my mind was that I'd finally found something in life that worked. I'd found that meditation was a possibility. I'd worked with it enough to know that it was taking me in the right direction, and I wanted a place where I could meditate. I was, uh, <clears throat> one of the stories was that I was trying to teach public school uh, down in Fairfield, and I really was committed to trying to meditate on a regular basis, and so the noon meditation was really important for me. So I s would sit there, the kids send the kids out to recess, and I'd be sitting in my my room trying to meditate. I look meditate, and I'd look up, and all the kids were at the window going like this. <laughs> What's he doing? <clears throat> and so then I decided, well, I can't do that. So where else in this place could I possibly meditate? And I thought, well, let's see, it's a school. There's a Oh my God! There's only three three males, adult males in this school. There's the janitor who only works in the evening. There's the principal and myself. The men's bathroom. <laughs> so the men's bathroom became my sanctuary for <laughs> several months. And at the end of that time, I started thinking, Well, do you want to spend the rest of your time, rest of your life, meditating in the men's bathroom? No. <laughs> you need to find a place. So I I had found out about Ananda, I, and I came up here, and I felt, you know, drawn. I felt drawn on some vibrational level. Um, I had read um, cooperative communities, how to start them and why, and was impressed. I was impressed by what was written in that book. So I came up and I started uh, my time here and um, I, I did feel, I felt at home. It was hard to know what at that stage what you felt at home with because there was nothing external that kind of gave you a sense of home, but there was a vibration. <laughs> and that vibration uh, was important to me. So I spent the whole summer up at the meditation retreat, and uh, I kept hearing about this guy, Swami Kriyananda, um, but he wasn't in residence, he wasn't around. And um, so finally it came to the end of the summer, and I think it was the first spiritual renewal week, I'm not sure, but I'd been kind of waiting, kind of saying, oh, well, who is this guy? I wonder who it is like, you know, how am I going to feel about him? So he, he arrived, and um, he started to give this 
his, his talks, he gave, he gave all the talks in those days and did everything else. <laughs> um, so I went to the talks, the first talk, and it turned out the whole week, he just finished his book, uh, Your Sun Sign as a Spiritual Guide. The whole week was on astrology. I had a massive bias against astrology. <laughs> I'd had a very unfortunate experience with it uh, just before that and trying to figure out what the spiritual path was all about. And that was the last thing I wanted to hear. So um, I wasn't impressed. You know, I thought, oh, he's, yeah, interesting man. Um, and at that point, I decided that, well, you know, I do like this place, but, you know, maybe I should do something else. So I ended up going back. That's when I went back to... Uh, graduate school and got my, uh, finished off my degree in education and my teaching credential at that point. And in retrospect, that was what was supposed to happen. <laughs> if Swami had given an inspiring talk about something I was open to, I would have stayed. <laughs> so it, it all worked out. Um, so anyway, then I, a couple of years later, I, I did move back up and I started, um, started being here. Um, one of the most important experiences for me, though, was, you know, I still, I would hear the people that I respected in the community talking about how much they got from Swami Kriyananda by working with him. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder what that's all about. And um, so um, Christmas came along. I'd been here about eight months at that time. I think I came in June or July, and so now it was getting to be Christmas. And um, some friends of mine and I had this idea that we would go on a pilgrimage, you know, part of Christmas vacation, and we'd go down to Big Sur, visit, you know, visit the uh, Immaculate Heart Hermitage down there where Swami spent some time and other places. And I was pretty excited because, you know, I'd been working with the kids all for several months and I wanted to do something different. So I um, got all, all ready to go. Got past, well, no, at first the, the thought came in, well, you know, I wonder what would happen if I wrote Swami about this trip. Just, I just kind of opened the door, see what he wants to do with it. I just, so I wrote him this little note and said, Swami, I got this idea to go off and uh, you know, go on this trip over, over Christmas, and I just wanted to know what you thought about. And uh, so I hadn't heard back. I kind of didn't expect to hear back because I didn't think he knew who I was at that point. And, um, but uh, the morning of the trip, I, we get in the car. And it's cold day, you know, so the car is revved up and ready to go. I put my stuff in the car, and we start to drive out. We drove past the mailroom, which was then in the, what's now the master's market. Uh, and then the thought came, oh, why don't you check your mail? Okay, so I pop out, check my mail. There's a note from, from Swami to me. He says, Nitai, I don't think you should uh, be gone for Christmas. And I, oh, my God. <laughs> so I was really excited about this trip. And it was like, oh, and it was a pilgrimage by all. I mean, what could you say no to a pilgrimage? Uh, but I thought, no, you know, this is part of the deal. I decided I was going to test this out. So I'm going to see where it goes. So I stopped. I said, okay, I guess I can't go. So I took my stuff out of the car. I trudged back to my trailer, and I started uh, a week of seclusion. I'd never had a seclusion before at that point. It was one of the most inspiring times of my whole life. I mean, I can even, thinking about it now, I can still get those waves. The first time I had experienced bliss on a continual basis for more than, you know, five minutes. <laughs> And so, you know, it went on day after day. I just, and I'm going through, and in my seclusion, I'm going, oh, thank you, Swami, thank you. This is perfect. This is so much better than driving around California with a bunch of guys in a car. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the last day of my seclusion, I get up, and I walk out, and I walk back down to the market. It's pretty early in the morning. Nobody's around. And boop, 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 here comes a little car, and there's Swami. And I come up, you know, and if I'd have been a more devotional temperament, I would have bowed down and touched his feet at that point. Because <laughs> it was like, oh my God, that was what an incredible device. And I says, and he, he says, 
oh, hi, Nitai, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, well, I got your note that, you know, you told me not to go on this pil pilgrimage. And I was trying to follow it. I just wanted to, I, I couldn't even get the words out. I was going to thank him profusely. And he says, oh, I, I thought the pilgrimage was a great idea. I just wanted you to come back in time for Christmas. I didn't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So I kind of was stunned, <laughs> and I went back, and the thought, the lesson I got is, he was an instrument, because yeah, I knew it was, he was an instrument for God, he didn't know about it. he didn't know it. <laughs> he wasn't conscious of it, at least, in, at least the way he expressed it to me, he wasn't conscious that that was what was happening. It affected my entire relationship with Swami the whole time. It was like it, it helped de it depersonalize it for me, which is something that I needed. Most people don't need that. I needed it. And so right from the start, that was the way the relationship went. Um, people, some people know that uh, I've been associated with the schools and the monastery for a long time. So uh, you, would think, you would think that Swami Krinanda sat me down and said, Nitai, you know, I think this would be really good for you to do this. Um, and I'd like you to try this or something of that sort. <laughs> okay. So, um, but no. Um, the schools, the first thing that happened to the schools is, um, I don't even know if Swami knew me or anything. There was another man in the community at that time, Ramatirtha, who found out that I you know, was drawn to kids and uh, actually had you know, done some teaching. And he was tuned in enough to the children to know that they desperately needed something. They were, they had, their favorite game at that time was jump, getting in the garden before the adults could come and picking the cabbages and then throwing the cabbages at the adults as they went by in the morning. <laughs> <clears throat> so Ramatirta asked me, he said, Nitai, would you, would you please work with the kids? And I said, oh, okay, sure, sure. So I started you know, doing my thing with them. And then um, it started off kind of on the wrong foot. It was too relaxed and the kids weren't, you know, they weren't going, they weren't behaving. And so I closed the school down after about two weeks. <clears throat> and uh, in my mind, I just thought, no, we just need a different setting. And, and I wanted them, I wanted to meet with each one of them and say, do you want school? Do you want to be in school and the parents and get an agreement that we were, what we're going to do so I could lay down some boundaries. But anyway, Swami heard about it. And that wasn't the first time the school had started and failed. There'd been other attempts in the past. So I was over at his uh, dome and we were just passing each other on the stairs and he just st stopped. He looked at me and he, uh, he just said, um, Michael, I was my name at that time. He says, Michael, do you think you can do it? <laughs> and I looked back and I said, oh gosh, I never thought of that. <laughs> and that was all. He went on, he went past me and that was it. And that was the only imp initial impact I had with the school, with, with him, with inter interaction. A few months later, I went over and I said, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing in this scene. Do you have any advice? And he said, no. He said, you could look at the uh, master's uh, um, magazines. And I, and I did, and I found some wonderful, very helpful articles. And I asked him, I said, what do you, maybe I should get some training. Maybe I should go study Montessori, or maybe I should go to Ranchi. And that kind of appealed to me, get out, go to India. And, <laughs> and he looked at me, he said, no, no. He said, there's nothing to learn at Ranchi. And um, then he said, no, you have to learn from inside. And that was it. <laughs> so that was pretty much the school for the next, you know, 10 years. <clears throat> and um, then he was, he was going to go to India or someplace, or into Italy, someplace like that. He was going off. 
And I went to him and I said, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years. We really need to write it up. Something, we need to write it up, what we're doing, to explain it to people. And he says, that's a good idea. Why don't you do it? <laughs> and I said, okay. So he, let, he went off and I had about two or three weeks to try to work on this, this book. And it was an amazing experience because I would start writing it and I would write, 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 and all of a sudden I was back where I started. <laughs> I made this complete circle with the thinking without getting anywhere. And so I did it again. I went round and circle again. I must have done that 50 times. It was just, it was crazy. <laughs> I was trying really hard because I really wanted this thing to work. I could not get it. So three weeks go by, Swami comes back and he sees me. He says, oh, Nita, I had the book go. And I said, Swami, I couldn't do it. I, and, and he just Okay. <laughs> and then he went back to you know, Crystal Hermitage and that's where Education for Life came from. And he just, because, because I'm looking at Education for Life, we were doing many of the things in that book intuitively, but we, I didn't have the bandwidth to be able to explain it, in, especially to a Western audience, because he was taking, if you, if you haven't read the book, it's fabulous, even for non-teachers. He takes these incredibly deep Vedic truths and puts them in Western language that anybody can relate to. You know, heavy, egoactive, instead of tamasic, rajasic. Uh, tools of maturity instead of paths of yoga. There's all these very, very deep, profound things that give incredible substance in life. And of course, he was the only one in the situation to be able to do that. And so, he, you know, that, that's when he stepped in. But that was, you know, he let me, he let, he let me explore in all kinds of directions on my own, make all kinds of mistakes. <laughs> and um, in those days, we could afford it. Nowadays in the school, we can't afford that because parents have higher standards. <laughs> but um, that was my karma. So then, um, then there was the monastery. So you'd think, yeah, well, the, the monastery had, had just begun over at Ayodhya, and uh, I had fought <laughs> very strongly with Divine Mother. No, no, it's like, like Br'er Rabbit and the rabbit and the uh, Briar Patch. Don't throw me in the Briar Patch. <laughs> don't throw, don't make, don't make me a monk. And um, but she kept kind of knocking on the door, and so finally. I move over. I moved over after resisting for a couple of years, and I got over there. And it was just a time that uh, there was enough people over there to try to organize it. And um, but most of the guys had been there on their own for a while, and it was much more of a, her a hermitage uh, than it was a monastery. People were very, very independent, and especially around their sadhana, <laughs> they did not want a lot of advice about how to how to structure their sadhana. But um, Swami, anyway. So this one, we had a teepee. We had a teepee for a temple. And uh, shortly after I got there, Swami, you know, put out the word that he was going to come down for a meditation. We didn't have group meditations at that point. Uh, people used the, the temple very sporadically. I see some smiles from certain guys who were there. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so enough people heard that we were going to have this meditation. So, okay, we come down at the time Swami had said, and we're all standing around outside. There's about half a dozen of us, I think, if I remember correctly. And Swami comes down. And so we were very... Uh, what you would say, men of few words. <laughs> so nobody says anything. Nobody says anything, and nothing had happened. Swami just stands there for a little while, <clears throat> and then he just walks into the temple and sits down. So we all walk into the temple and sit down. <clears throat> and so I'm sitting there. I'm kind of the new guy in the block, and I'm, I'm especially not very uh, good at sitting with crossed legs. But there was no, there were no chairs in the temple, and so uh, we're sitting there cross-legged and. 
nobody says anything. There's no opening prayer. There's no anything. It's just silence. So we're all sitting there, and I, okay, I'm sitting there. I meditate, and then, you know, half hour goes by, you know, 45 minutes goes by. And my, my knees start hurting <laughs> because I'm sitting in this awkward position. And an hour goes by. Nobody says anything. I thought, God, how long do they meditate? <laughs> Swami's sitting there meditating. Nothing helps you. And so finally, I don't know, at the hour and a quarter, hour and a half mark, I can't stand anymore. I go, Om. <laughs> and everybody kind of goes, Om. <laughs> and everybody gets up and walks out. That's nobody. <laughs> so I'm at my trailer the next day, and Keshava comes up to my trailer. Keshava was Swami's secretary at the time. He comes up and says, Swami wants to know if you'd like to be the head monk. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, all right. Uh, so I, I go down to his house. I, I, would, I never went down to his house before. I go down to his house for the first time, and I knock on the door, and I say, hi, Swami, I, I, I got your message, and uh, yeah, I'd be willing to do it, but I, I'd like, you know, what, would you, what do you think we should do? What would you like to do? He looks at me, he says, Nitai, I organized one monastery in this lifetime. I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> I'm back on my own. I go back to my trailer. Okay, God, what, do we, what does the monastery do? What do, what do monks do? <laughs> so I thought, well, group meditation. Okay, group meditation sounds like a good idea. Of course, nobody else was interested in it. <laughs> but I, you know, I passed the word around. I said, oh, we'll start, you know, we can have meditations in the morning. You know, so I went up, we had a, the, the teepee was down the hill next to Swami's house. I lived a little bit up the hill, and then the bell was a little bit up the hill from me, kind of on the borderline between where the monks and nuns no man's land was. <laughs> and uh, so I would go up about six o'clock or so in the morning, and I'd ring the bell, and I'd walk down to the temple. And very quickly, I realized I was going to have a nice, quiet meditation because nobody else was going to show up. And so uh, that, that went on, you know, for, I don't know, three or four months, I think, if I remember correctly. I would get up, I would go, ring the bell, go down, I'd meditate, and then I'd go back to my trailer. And it was fabulous for me because I had this fabulous sadhana <laughs> that I was getting up there at the same time every morning because in my mind I thought bringing the bell was important. And no, I don't remember anybody coming the whole, the whole time. I was completely by myself. And so this one morning I get up and I start to walk up the hill and I thought, you know, nobody ever comes. I don't think the bell is important. I'm just going to go down. I'm going to go down to the temple. So I, that morning I go down to the temple and I meditate come out just as usual, but there was something different that morning. <laughs> the only time ever that Swami's out for a walk at that time of morning. And she's out for a walk exactly at the time that I come out of the temple, so our paths have to cross. And he stops and he says, hi, hi, Michael, hi, Nitai. I can't remember if I was Nitai yet. And um, he just says, I didn't hear the bells this morning. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and I, I said, yeah, Swami, I explained my thinking and he said, keep ringing the bell. They'll come. <laughs> and that was my only direction on the monastery. <laughs> so 
I think the point of that, trying to tell those stories is that I had a very peculiar <laughs> approach to the guru-disciple relationship. Um, I wasn't all that open to it. Um, and Swami sensed that. He sensed that. that and my whole relationship with, it, at, with him was very impersonal. Um, if I added up the number of minutes that I spent alone with Swami, um, we've already passed that mark in this talk. <laughs> and that's in 40 years. Um, it was what he forced me to do, but I not forced me, I can't say forced me, this is what I wanted to do, was he forced me to feel that, the presence of the guru inside, to feel that, and to, you know, all of his direction was all to me, look inside, look inside, find that. And when I tried to reach out to him in a more personal way, it never worked. I mean, I remember this one time I'd been, how am I doing time-wise? Okay. This one time I'd, um, I'd, I'd watched, you know, I've been around, I watched people time after time go on trips with Swami, somebody go this way, some people go that way. Never me, never. And, uh, you know, part of me inside, you know, is wondering about it. And I, and I think, well, what happens if I push? What happens if I push and see what happens? <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'll use my will and I'll push to get on this next trip. So, so Swami was going to LA and I said, okay, and I, some, you know, I just kind of, forged my way in so that all that morning I'm in the car, I'm in the back seat of the car. <laughs> <clears throat> and Swami gets in the car and he, he turns around, he looks at it and he says, Nitai, you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> and it was just again, it was, okay, that's, that's not the kind of relationship you're supposed to have. And there's another avenue open with, for you. So I just, but, but then, you know, over the years I, st I started to see, you know, Swami is an instrument for me because God comes through him for me in there's very unique ways. When I think back, I actually think, even though I had so little time in personal interaction, I can't think of a single time I had with him when there wasn't, wasn't some very important lesson that I was supposed to learn. It just is all encapsulated in, in a very brief period of time. And, uh, you know, there were different periods of my relationship with him. The, uh, the beginning, it was, he, was, he was very supportive, very complimentary in what I was doing in the community. And uh, then there was a period of time where, you know, there was no, just nothing, almost no interaction. And then there was about 10 years where I felt, you know, that it was, he was like taking these little hand grenades and throwing them at me to see if I would leave. <laughs> and just like, because it was just stuff what would come up and I would, I would be, I wasn't expecting it usually. It was just stuff would come up usually through an email or something where it's like, wow, you know, because he'd, interpreted something I'd done in a way that uh, I hadn't meant to, but maybe there was a deeper truths that he was uh, tuning into. And so anyway, that went on for a long time. Um, and it was you know, maybe only the last couple of years that, that where I really felt that that period had ended and that there was this more of an openness. And, and my closing remark was, uh, I had sent him an email or something about the school probably. And uh, Often I didn't get a response, but this time um, he, he had given, he had talked to um, Lakshman. And it was very, very interesting how he phrased it. He, he, he said, tell Nitai such and such and answer the mail. And, and then he just said to, to Lakshman to, also to tell me, he said, he stuck with it to the end. He says, I'm touched. <laughs> At that point, I didn't know what the end meant because I'm thinking, well, God, am I going to be checking out soon? But, it, you know, it was, it was to the end. And, I mean, there were so many times that I could have, I could have taken off. So I do, it was with 
divine blessing is that it, it lasted till the end. Thank you. <clears throat> Many blessings to you all. When I came to Ananda here, I wanted to learn how to meditate. I wanted to live the spiritual life, at least as I could perceive it at that time. I wanted to help others, and I wanted to live in community. And it was Swamiji that taught me that I would be able to realize all of that by loving God. Perhaps that seems obvious, but God wasn't a conscious uh, being in my life at that time. And so I want to share just a little bit about that aspect of discipleship, which is devotion. There's a wonderful episode in the great Indian epic, the Ramayana. And in this part of the story, Ram is banished from the kingdom for 12 years. And Rama was destined to be the next heir to the throne. This was what his father had originally wanted. But his stepmother contrived this whole plot and which would favor her son being heir, who was younger, Bharat. And so Bharat is away at this time when all of this stuff is going on. And when he comes back, he finds that Ram and his wife Sita, Ram's brother Lakshman, they've all left for the forest for a long time. And Bharat is beside himself. He, he, doesn't, he can't figure out how this has come to be. And what's more, he doesn't want to be king. He never thought of being king. It never occurred to him to be king. Why is this happening? And he runs after Ram, finds him in the forest, and pleads with him to come back. He pleads and pleads. And Ram says, I can't. This has been ordained. This is my dharma. I will do this, and I will return in 12 years. And Bharat is beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. And he says to Ram, at least give me your sandals. And Ram takes the sandals off his feet, and Bharat places them on the throne as symbol that even though he's going to need to lead, it is really God. Ram is God. It is really God who is leading Ram, um, God who is guiding the kingdom while Ram is physically absent. And when I think of how this, you know, what meaning this has to my life in terms of my life experience, I think of this story and I think of Swamiji. Because Swamiji, everything was about loving God and Guru. He said to Master, yes, I give you my unconditional love. And everything that he did, every undertaking, God first. This is for God. This is for Master. It's what inspired him. It's what motivated him. He couldn't have done anything. If he hadn't felt that, he wouldn't have been true to himself. It was all about loving God. This mandir, this Lahiri mandir, when it was dedicated, I think it was a spiritual renewal week or something like this because it was, there were hundreds of people here. That's a very little mandir. And Swamiji dedicated that mandir 
And obviously, we all couldn't fit in there. We couldn't even file through there, through that single door. And so most of us were around the side, and I was one who was outside that mandir. And I didn't hear what Swamiji said. I didn't see with my own eyes what he did. But there was a picture that was taken, I'm sure one of many, and it's of Swamiji before that statue of Lahiri. And it's not what he's wearing. He was in Western clothes. He had his glasses on, no long hair, no orange. And he was kneeled down with his head bowed, a mala in his hand, touching the statue of Lahiri. It's just a statue. But that picture, which I keep in my office, because when I saw that picture, it electrified me. I just, it just caught me in my heart deeply. And it, it just speaks of devotion. It speaks of Swamiji's profound love for God. Swamiji came to this path as an intellectual, very strong intellect, a genius, really. But it was Master who encouraged him through devotion, and it was through devotion that he was able to attune himself to the consciousness of his guru. It was through devotion that he was able to succeed on his own personal spiritual path, and it was through devotion that he was able to bring other souls to God. When he first came to the ashram at Mount Washington there, uh, he was new, trying to get the lay of the land, and some of the brothers were uh, embarking on a fast, the grape cure. And fasting has a place and its relevancy if done with the right spirit, so I, I don't want to knock it uh, in any way. But Master, Master said, devotion is the greatest purifier. And after a few days, he came to Swahi, he was there. I, I don't know what was going on, but he saw Swamiji, the young Walters, and he said, I don't want to break your will, but don't you think your time would be better spent cultivating devotion? And he said to Swamiji, get devotion. You must have devotion. Swamiji, in the, his autobiography, he shares that uh, one of the brother disciples, Norman, Norman had a natural devotional bearing. And Swamiji would say something about, you know, some aspect of yogic philosophy or something, and Norman would kind of shrug his shoulders, and I don't know about that. I just know that I love God. And Swamiji said he envied Norman of his devotion. He said even Master was touched by it. And Swamiji said he had to work very hard. Interesting he said those words about the quality of devotion, but he said I had to work very hard to develop it. And he would chant and he would pray and he said nightly he would sing the chant, Will that day come to me, Mother, Mother? when my eyes will flow with tears. And he, he did, he worked hard at it. And Master one day came up to him and said, keep up with your devotion. See how dry your life has been as you've depended just on the intellect. 
Many years later, when Swamiji was in India, he day after day would frequent a temple there, and he would spend many, many hours there. And one day, the local temple priest, the pujari, came up to him and said, Excuse me, but I see you coming here day after day after day. What is it you're praying about? And Swamiji said, I'm praying to love God more deeply. And the priest was very moved, and he shared with Swami, he said, most people come, they ask for wealth, they ask for health, they ask for a spouse, they ask for a job. Very rarely do people pray to love God more deeply. Devotion is not a sappy thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's a quality, a spiritual quality of tremendous power, tremendous strength. We can see that in Swamiji's life. And you have to dig deep for it. It's not on the surface. It's not on the ripples of the water. It's deep, deep down. Swamiji said, I had to work hard. But we can see in the fullness of his life that truly that's what's guided him, the love for God and the love, the desire to share that love and give that love to other people. When my husband Anant and I uh, were asked to go and uh, many years we spent as colony leaders in Sacramento and just before we left, Swamiji called us down and gave us his blessing. And he said four words. Now think about this a minute. Here is a man who, in his guru's organization, he established, he organized, he set up all of the centers. He was the main minister who traveled to those different centers, worked with those people. You know, he had a lot under his belt. He taught classes. He taught to thousands of people. He knew how to work with people. He had tremendous organizational skills. What he knew in terms of potential advice could fill volumes, four words. And he said, teach from your heart. And to this day, I try to tune into it, exactly what he was trying to share with the both of us. A great part of it, as Anandi said, is just being a channel for God's love. It's not about the work. It's not about the project. Those are big ones for me. It's not about just the people in terms of numbers. It's about loving God through the work, loving God through the project, loving God through the people. And as I said, those words really captured a lot for me. Master said that devotion is the greatest protection against delusion. It's a very interesting statement. 
And again, when I think of Swamiji, when you look at the total of his life and all that he did, you can't help but see it outwardly. You can't. Series of projects always looming on the horizon. There was never a void or a space that was empty. The activity, the books, the creations, the music, all of it, just one thing, one beautiful expression after another. And it would be natural to assume that anyone who did half of it, a third of it, a quarter of it, some small amount of that would come away with a little bit of a puffed up ego. You know, isn't this wonderful what I have created? Isn't this wonderful what I have done? Or at least, wow, that was a good idea. I had a really good idea there. You know, something like that. And, but again, you look at his life, his dedication, his orientation, the whole, his whole orientation of being loving God, serving God, loving master, serving his guru, bottom line, and the totality of his life at the same time. And so all of those things, there was never the thought that I am doing this. It was just, and what you felt through them was that divine love. I remember on my first pilgrimage to Assisi, I, um, well, there was this couple from England, and they were visiting. And they wanted to be baptized in the Catholic Church. And they made arrangements for this ceremony to, be take, to take place in the Catholic Church by the priests, by the brothers, the Franciscan brothers. It was there at the Basilica of San Francesco. And they wanted also, they knew Ananda, I don't recall what their relationship was, but they wanted people from Ananda to be there and to sing music. And so about five of us went. I, how we got permission to be there in that kind of setting, I don't know. This was in the 80s. And <clears throat> we went there, about five of us, and we sang Blessed the Life. We sang uh, Long I Have Called You. And we sang Lord, May We Serve You. And these were throughout the ceremony. And when we were done, there was a, uh, the priest was there. There were two or three of the brothers there, the monks, the Franciscan monks. And at the end of the ceremony, one of them came up to us, radiant. You know, he was a beautiful man, beautiful soul. And he was so moved, he said, by the music. He was so moved. And he said, it makes me want to take baptism. I mean, you know, he's already in the church. He's already steeped in that tradition. But he said, it made me want to take and do this ceremony. And I think, I'm certain, that that's because of the love he felt through that music the devotion of Swamiji's consciousness attuned fully in service to God and Guru. And that's what he felt, and it electrified him. It made him feel in himself his own love and devotion to God. And Master said also, never count your faults. Only consider how much you love God. And this, too, is another important aspect. 
I remember in an early seclusion that I took, I was in a little cabin, and it was here at the village, and I was very new to that process. And I was chanting and chanting for a while, and there was a robin outside in the tree, and the robin was singing as robins do. But I just kept singing. And no matter, I wasn't always aware of it, but whenever my consciousness, you know, pulled, I guess, out enough to be aware of my environment from the chanting, I was always aware that that robin was singing. It's a simple experience, but it was so sweet. I mean, birds sing. But what God was saying to me through that was when we sing to God, God sings with us. When we love God, God loves with us. And it really anchored that for me. It really deepened and helped me to want to deepen my own devotion. Very near the end of Swamiji's life, he was giving a talk in Los Angeles. And there was a question-answer session at the end. And someone had asked him about affirmations. And so he was talking about affirmations, the importance of affirmations, why practice them, sharing, why practice them, and sharing different affirmations. And then someone asked him, well, Swamiji, what affirmation do you use? And he paused for a moment and he said, well, I don't have one. And then he sort of chuckled and he said, well, I guess I should have one. And then he paused again, and then he said, I do have one. I say, I love you. I love you. Final song that we're all going to sing together. Um, There was a ceremony for many years that would happen midweek here at Ananda Village called the Superconscious Attunement Ceremony. And uh, I think Swami may have created that just to give the community a chance to come together midweek and attune to each other. And so a song that he wrote called Oneness or Joined in Prayer has these words, Joined in prayer we worship thee, rays of light that seek the sun. I love that image, rays of light that seek the sun. Many drops do make a sea, so our love when joined as one. So I'm going to invite you all to stand up and join hands. Yes. Oh, what's the new word? Thus Thus our love. Okay. Thus our love. New word. All right. So here we go. Joined in prayer we worship thee, rays of light that seek the sun. Many drops to make us see, thus our love when joined as one. Thus our love when joined as one. One more time. Joined in prayer we worship thee, rays of light that seek the sun. Many drops do make us see, thus our love when joined as one. Thus our love when joined as one. Thank you.